Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to answer your Bible questions. If you'd like to send us your questions, note the only standard is, of course, that they are sincere about the Bible and asked in the form of a question. If you have a question concerning the Bible that fits that criteria, we'll be happy to address it for the next hour, not only on our broadcast where we are live streaming on calvarychristianfellowship.com, but also on our YouTube and Facebook pages as well, and, of course, those listening on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates. If you are listening to this, say, beyond the bounds of time and space, and you want to still send us your question, note that we are receiving these when you send them, and if that is both during or after the broadcast, it will be treated as respectfully as it is presented. And note as well that when it comes to the topic of the questions, whether it's biblical prophecy, biblical history, or relevance to your life today, they are welcome as long as they are sincere and about the Bible. If you'd like to send them to us, once again, we are live streaming on our website, Calvary, that's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, ChristianFellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, and you'll be directed to where we are streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and as well, if Pacific Standard is also in your foretaste. We will be there as long as it's not daylight savings time. We here in Arizona don't go for that. It's going to hit 100, by the way, by the end of this weekend, or almost 40 degrees for those listening overseas. Life's miserable. Anyway, so if you want to send us your questions, you can join us there. On the right-hand side of the screen, you will be able to leave questions that we'll be watching as the broadcast unfolds. And as well, our email address will be spelled out at the bottom of the screen if you would like to send us questions after the broadcast concludes. Note as well, if you're listening on Reach Radio, need that spelled out. It's questions, plural, F-O-R, hope, at gmail.com. That will remain open and available 24-7 to receive your questions, but note that when we are live streaming, you can engage with us live there. If you would like to join us on YouTube, it's A Reason for Hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, since we do not control when or why we are taken down from those platforms, we encourage you to make a regular habit of joining us on our website. That way, any technological mishaps and incompetence is entirely to blame on us, and you don't have to work around the tech tyranny we are coming more and more accustomed to every single day. With all that said, though, we want to make sure God speaks more than we do. So before we get to some questions that we weren't able to yesterday and give you time to send us yours, we want to start off in a word of prayer. Peter, would you like to do that? Yep. Father, we thank you so much that we have the opportunity to be here, to um, have an opportunity to get into your word. Uh, We pray that right now, me and Sean would be able to answer these questions in a way that honors your truth, in a way that edifies and builds up all those listening so they might understand you a little bit better and be able to explain you better to others we love you lord and in your name amen that is true now speaking of explaining god to others generally there was a title used to describe people that would do that in history specifically at the time the bible was being revealed we call them prophets now nina asked yesterday what is the difference between someone who's legitimately a prophet and someone who just 
got lucky in a guess or even a prediction. Say they read the writing on the wall, said that such and such a person will do this or this will happen to them. It comes true. Does that make them a prophet? What does the word mean? And what would be the limits as opposed to a biblical prophet and the self-appointed prophets we encounter today? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question and a good one. Uh, so the title of prophet which is relegated to the Old Testament. There are some people in the New Testament that have the gift of prophecy, which we'll talk about in a second. But the title, the office, uh, as it were, of a prophet was something that was relegated only to the Old Testament. The reason why is because uh, it actually tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that God at various times and in various ways revealed himself to our forefathers. So, in other words, the prophet was the office that received direct revelation of God's nature for the people of Israel. And so God revealed himself in moments of history to various prophets in such a way that they can then delineate that information to those around them. So actually every Old Testament book that we have was written, at least in, uh, if not entirely, at least in part, by these prophets, right? So they were able to take historical events. They were able to take things that were happening around them or direct revelation from God. And they were able to then delineate that to those around them in the new Testament. The reason why we don't really have the opposite prophet anymore is because Jesus is the perfect revelation of God's nature. Uh, we don't really need a go between anymore because God himself has come down and revealed himself to us. And since Jesus is such a perfect revelation of God's nature, character, and plan, there is no need to have the office of prophet anymore. Now, a lot of people, when they think about prophets, they associate it with future uh, predictions, things like that. That is something that a prophet could do, but it really wasn't the totality of their job or their office. It was just something that, that was a part of their job. So in other words, how do I know that this guy is hearing directly from God? Well, the predictions were a way to know that. So if someone says, hey, God was talking to me yesterday and, you know, I was praying in the woods and all of a sudden God came down and revealed to me that, you know, the Trinity is nonsense. And, and really, God is just one person and one being who copulated with his wives and then produced his spiritual offspring. And that's really where we come from. Now, that's a very different revelation from what we have in the Bible. I would expect someone to back up a claim like that with some proof. So the prophets would give their credentials of their, their station through predictive prophecy. Not always. Elijah, for instance, uh, gave his credentials in very different ways, <laughs> usually through some pretty uh, fiery ways, pun intended. And uh, Moses as well. That's another very good example. But Isaiah, very specifically throughout his prophecies, he says, I tell you these things before they happen that you may know that I am he. That is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah is like, how will you know that I am actually telling you the truth and not lying to you? Because the stuff that I'm telling you will happen, will happen. Uh, Jeremiah, very similar. He was uh, contesting with a lot of false prophets. Now, this is very much distinguished from someone who's just making an educated guess, right? So, uh, for instance, there are many people financial in, uh, that are that are kind of at the head of their field, you know, financial advisors, politicians, people like that. And they could, the reason why people tend to call them prophets is because they can sense the winds of change very acutely and they could predict where those winds are going to bring us. 
and usually they're going to be right. I think uh, someone who gets thrown around in Christian circles as being a modern-day prophet is Joel Rosenberg. Uh, now, Joel Rosenberg is not a prophet. He's the first one to tell you I'm not a prophet. However, he begins one of his books with a terrorist flying a plane into the Pentagon, I believe. And this was years before 9-11. So <laughs> you have an instance where a guy is writing a fictional book, and in the fictional book, you have a terrorist jihadi that is t- using a plane as a weapon to fly it into something that would harm the United States years before it actually happened in real life. That's kind of chilling. Now, how was he able to predict this? Did God reveal that to him? No. He was just an acute observer of the terrorist movement, and he figured that they were upping their game, and he predicted that the best way to cause maximum damage on U.S. soil would be to hijack some sort of an aircraft. That would be the easiest way to do that. So he... Uh, again, he's not a prophet, but he was able to predict something true because he had a little bit of insight. Now, this is even uh, more distinguished from people who make just tons of guesses and sometimes get lucky. Nostradamus is a very good example of this. If you've ever read <laughs> the prophecies of Nostradamus, they're incredibly vague. He makes tons of them. And yeah, some of them kind of came true as long as you're looking at it in a really generalized sense and you're having to kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. But a lot of the stuff he said did not come true. Why? Because he's not receiving divine revelation. This is why the test of a prophet that God gives us is a 100% accuracy rate. If someone is speaking on behalf of God and revealing things on behalf of God, they better get everything right. Uh, now, to transition in the New Testament, so we don't have the office of prophet anymore, what is the gift of prophecy all about, and does it still exist today? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, essentially every spiritual gift, as far as the Holy Spirit's involvement in the church, are spelled out for us. And what's interesting about the purpose of prophecy, that's really how it's defined. It's to speak, so it's something done audibly. It's not, uh, you know, some uh, ethereal sensation or something that happens in your bosom in the burning, since we're making vague allusions to Mormonism today. It's a vocal communication of truth but for what purpose for the edification the building up in knowledge the exhortation the encouraging or building up in action and comfort the settling down of spirit and emotion of the body of christ and this is done through his written word now someone can prophesy those things apart from god's word but as first thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19 through 21 says test all things hold fast to what is good in the context of not despising prophecies so if you hear something from god that's not not allowed (laughs) to double negative myself into a clear (laughs) statement If, on the other hand, I were to say that statement is kind of iffy, given what God's already said, I have a working rule. God doesn't change in his nature, in his fundamental personality, if you will. When we're talking about a God of truth, Jesus, who himself attested before Pontius Pilate, all those who hear the truth hear my voice, we don't have a God who is a liar. Going all the way back to the book of Numbers, he clarifies, interestingly enough, through the prophet Balaam, saying God's not a man that he should lie. He's not the type of thing that lies. He's truth by nature. So if things are going to come from God, it's going to A, line up with the truth he's already spoken, and B, it's going to still line up with truth we could know now. 
Now, as these things are revealed, obviously they can be secret things, like I know what you're thinking right now, and how do you do that? Are you like Professor X in some <laughs> Marvel movie? No, I'm just communicated with the one who can know the thoughts and tents of the heart, a la Jeremiah 17. You can talk about circumstances in people's lives. I'm sure when you're speaking from the pulpit, you didn't know the person that got upset with you after the message that as you were just speaking, you just felt like this is a good illustration. They come up to you and say, I really don't appreciate you talking about me like that. It's like, I don't know you, but I know someone who does. And of course, there would just be plain explanations of scripture in a way that fall in line with reality, with the author's intent. These would all be examples of prophecy, but not from a prophet. The whole point, though, is, as you stated, someone who speaks on behalf of God. That's literally what a prophet is, whether that's in the past, getting history right, in the present, speaking the facts plainly as they stand, or the future, which is an example, but not the only example of prophecy. That would be, in an Old or New Testament sense, speaking on behalf of God, because he, as we, I'm sure, are well aware, does not consider the limitations of time an obstacle. If he's going to speak, those things are inconsequential to him. But if, on the other hand, we were to say, no, I've got like a 90% accuracy rate, what would be our response then? Uh, you're not a prophet. <laughs> yeah, you're not speaking on behalf of yeah. the 100% God. Yeah, and th- this is it sounds harsh, but that is the standard that Moses sets up in Deuteronomy 18. So he warns that false prophets will come, and the standard that he gives is 100% accuracy or they're not hearing from God. So. Bless their heart. We got uh, people in the comment section asking, how's your eye? For those oh. who uh, aren't, away, aren't aware, uh, he had a little injury yesterday right, to fill in for him in the main service. Yeah, that's... It looks okay. How's it Yeah, feeling? it's a little bloodshot. Yeah, so I uh, I was doing some drilling. I do woodworking uh, as a hobby, and so I was building a table for myself and my wife, and I was doing some drilling underneath it, and I should have worn goggles, but I didn't, and, uh, you know, a big chunk of sawdust that congealed in the heat fell into my right eye, and in an attempt to scoop it out, I ended up scratching it, but they gave me some pretty cool drops at the VA, so I am... I'm all right, but thank you for asking. So two <laughs> miracles. Uh, you got help with the VA, and you're doing better. So <laughs> now uh, thank you for the request and for those uh, listening. Please uh, keep him in prayer. We need his eyes. But um, let us know if that helps you out, Nina, and we appreciate you sending more questions along the way, but I wanted to get to that because that is an important one. People say, oh, I'm a modern-day prophet, or like you stated with the allusion to Mormonism, Joseph Smith is a Latter-day Saint, a prophet for today, revealing truths about God. Well, even if he got some prophecies right, which he didn't, yeah, he didn't. also <laughs> got some. I think wrong. that is just like God's sense of humor, where v- both Muhammad and Joseph Smith made quite a few predictive prophecies. And some of them, you're like, they're not even that impressive. And even then, they didn't come true. Like, for instance, the temple in Missouri is my favorite, where they had the land, they had an intent to build the temple. He predicts that it's going to happen in a pretty conservative amount of time. Just a generation, which is, that's a long shot. And it just, (laughs) through some red tape, it just still hasn't happened. You know, (laughs) that's stuff like that. Or Muhammad's prediction about uh, different armies conquering one another. Yeah, the Byzantines (laughs) have been victorious, but the Persians will have victory over them sometime later. Great. Uh, That didn't happen, A, and B. (laughs) It's super vague, first of all, but yeah, secondly, it didn't even happen. So it's just, it's, I think it's just kind of funny how people can make these, these modern day prophets make these pretty easy to get right 
kind of uh, things, and even then they get it wrong. Or Charles so. Taze Russell in the Watchtower yeah. Bible and Tract Society, acting as a prophet of God, failing to predict the date of what they call Armageddon, the return of the Lord. Like six 20, times? 20, 20 times. 20 times, yeah. And failing every single time. We can go into Ellen G. White and her mishaps, but yeah. uh, she fortunately repented before the end. The point being made, though, is this. You hear someone claim they're a prophet with a capital P and a PH, not an F. Don't listen to a word they have to say. If someone says, I have a word from the Lord from you, that's different. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Don't despise them, but there's two verses after that. Test them according to what you already have. And then we go from there. But let us know if that helps you out, Nina, and we'll look forward to more of your questions. But first, I want to get to a question from Monica, who wants to know about the road to Emmaus that's in the Gospel of Luke. Did the two disciples not recognize Jesus because of unbelief or Jesus changed his appearance so they wouldn't recognize him? Good question, Monica, and it's a point of speculation for some people because when I'm sure we look at times in our past and we wonder why didn't I get this, it could have been a number of factors that we were just in a place where we weren't looking for something and it was right in front of us. Mm -hmm. I'm sure every man in the audience listening can relate to those times, just somehow magically appears when you call for your mother or wife and then it's just there for some reason. I don't know how that works. It's it's magical. But on the other hand, we're talking about uh, Jesus' appearance to them. It says that their eyes were veiled. Now, what is the significance of that? Yeah, so the passage that you're talking about is in Luke 24. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. And it's before his general revelation of himself to his apostles. So once Jesus rises from the dead, he shows himself to various peoples uh, on the same day, on Resurrection Sunday. And then it's not until about eight days later, which is kind of funny to me, but you know, eight days later that he finally does a general revelation of himself to his apostles. And then he goes to Galilee with them and teaches them for uh, several weeks before ascending to his father. So this is kind of on that first day, the resurrection Sunday. He's already uh, shown up to the women at the empty tomb. And there's just a couple apostles, a couple disciples walking to Emmaus. They're basically trying to flee because there's a pretty predictable coming wrath from the religious leaders that killed Jesus. Now, Look at the language. We'll look at the language and then we'll kind of speculate it a little bit because, as Sean said, it is a little speculative. We don't really know what this means, but let's just read the verse. Uh, now, this is verse 13 of chapter 24. Now, behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things that had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained. So they did not know him. Okay. So, so far, their eyes are objective, not Jesus' body. Right. Exactly. Uh, So it doesn't say that Jesus changed his appearance. It just says that their eyes are restrained for some reason. Now, later on, they have an interesting conversation and probably one of the coolest Bible studies that we'll never be able to see uh, takes place. But in verse 25, Jesus says to them, then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart. To believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into glory? Then he gives this pretty awesome Bible study that, again, we'll never get, which is unfortunate. But then later on, they break bread. Verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up the very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven 
uh, and those who are with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So it's very interesting that it says their eyes were restrained. And it's even more interesting that they have a seven-mile conversation with Jesus at this point. Seven miles. I don't know if you've ever walked seven miles, but that's a, that's a day trip, right? That's a, that's a long trip. That's hours. And they're having this really awesome conversation with him. They sit down. They're eating. And then he breaks bread, and it says that they recognize him. So does this mean that God was supernaturally restraining them from seeing? Possibly. I think it's more likely, though that their eyes were restrained because of their unbelief. Now, uh, this, hap- this has happened to me a couple times, and none of those times something like this has happened. But uh, after I got out of the Marine Corps, me and my friends, we were just so unbelievably close during the time in the Marines, and then we just split off. And I haven't seen a lot of them to this day. I've talked to them on the phone, but I haven't just seen them in person for 10 years now. And every now and then I'll I'll walk around and I will see someone and I will swear that it's one of them. And the reason why I don't approach that person is because I'm like, wait, this guy lives in New Jersey. I'm in Tucson, Arizona. There's no way he'd be at Fry's, you know, buying some groceries and not let me know that he's in town. It's just not going to happen. So I, I avoid him. That would be an instance where I just, in my mind, even though my eyes are telling me this is that guy, they look identical. My mind is telling me, but it can't possibly be them. That's probably what was going on with these apostles. Again, this is more speculative, but I think that the text and the narrative that Luke is presenting with us supports this. They did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So if you see somebody, this happens a lot also to people who lose a loved one. Uh, Every now and then you'll be walking around and you'll see someone that looks like the person that died. Now, you will, you would never go and be like, oh, it's you. You're risen from the dead. You wouldn't do that because you don't want to look like a, a nut, you know, and you, and you know intellectually they, they, it can't be them. And if it was them, I'm doubting God raised them from the dead. And they, again, they went to the Y or something like that to work out without telling me. It's just not going to happen. So even though they saw Jesus and they recognized that it looked like Jesus, they weren't going to say anything because they didn't believe he rose from the dead. It wasn't until he broke bread that it was just unavoidable. They were like, this is him. And finally, their hearts were open to the truth. And again, it's kind of sad that he gives them this huge, long sermon for hours telling them that the Christ had to die and had to rise from the dead. And it it still took them until he broke bread before they were finally like, OK. And by the way, Jesus had given him like dozens of warnings that this exact thing would happen while he was still alive. So, it, you know, but hey, at least they they eventually got got with it and that's the tricky part for a lot of people is when they're reading that why is it that when he broke bread they realized it was them their eyes were opened Mm -hmm. well that could either be an external restraint or an internal restraint being lifted but either way something was being lifted and that was what the skepticism the assumption that that can't be jesus and this was enough to push them over that i guess uh, hill of unbelief 
or it was at this point they needed to understand and God allowed them to see. Now we see examples of both in scripture. The prophet Isaiah talked about and was quoted by the way in tongues uh, referencing people that just will not understand but it's because the Lord has restrained their eyes from seeing and their ears from hearing. But we also note as well that people can just be fallen and God will work with us until we get over that hurdle. Both can be happening or one or the other but noting what we can verify it's that all of the text points us to it being their issue. Their eyes were covered. Not Jesus' body or appearance was altered. That would be more of an inference than I think we can justify from the text itself. Let us know if that helps you out, Monica. Thank you for the question. A few questions sent along to us. I want to get to the ones that you guys asked later, but I guess we'll be principled here and go in order. When Jesus, this is from Yara, used a whip to drive people out of the temple, was he expressing righteous anger and did anyone get hurt because he mentioned healing people afterwards? Thank you. Oh, I think that's uh, conjoining two Lego bricks that don't actually fit, Yari, but I appreciate the willingness to, I guess, muddle the issue. When it comes to righteous anger, and I remember when you asked this yesterday, you mentioned that this was an outburst. Uh, understand that anger isn't a sin. We need to first understand that much. Paul emphasized this in being a follower of Jesus, and being able to verify his teachings with the apostles themselves, said, be angry and do not sin. He wouldn't give a command, you know, how implies can, right? That's, that's what fundamental law of ethics. So if we're talking about the idea of anger, what is it and why? And you talk about this in both of your books, but <laughs> uh, when it comes to this uh, sticky business of using anger the right way, why is it that when Jesus did it, it was called righteous anger, not just because of the name attached to it, but the way he executed it. And even if people got hurt, why would that not affect the use of the anger? Yeah, no, very good question, because I think the topic of anger gets very misunderstood within the body of Christ all the time, where some people believe that anger is just a flat-out sin. And they would point to passages like James chapter 1, verse 19, uh, be quick to listen, slow to, spe- slow to speak, slow to get angry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Of man. Right. So they would look at that and say, oh, okay, so the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, therefore acting out of anger is always wrong. Now, it's, that's a hard sell because, as you said, Sean, we do see people acting out of anger in the scriptures, and there's debate about whether or not they're acting righteously in those instances, but Jesus acts out of anger <laughs> numerous times, actually. Uh, He acts out of anger in raising Lazarus from the dead. He acts out of anger in healing a leper. And he acts out of anger here. Now, there's different reasons as to why he's angry throughout his gospel ministry. But all these times, he's being moved with anger, right? That's what's happening within his life. Now, what the Bible is getting at, and you can go through the book of Proverbs to really see this, is that what anger does is it's our emotional response to injustice. Right. So when you see something unjust about to happen or in the aftermath of some something unjust happening, your emotional response will inevitably be anger. You will get upset about that. And that anger, depending on when that anger is being stoked within you, whether it's before the fact or after the fact, if it's before the fact, that anger is going to move you to prevent injustice. If it's after the fact, your anger is going to move you to avenge the injustice. But regardless, your anger is going to move you to even the books to try to pursue just cause within the world. 
Now, the reason why James is saying that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, by the way, he uses a very interesting word in the Greek. The Greeks had multiple words for anger. He's not just talking about anger in general. Wrath in that kind of context would be impulsive anger, uh, just feeling angry and then acting out of that impulse. That's not what, that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about righteous anger. What it means is that if I feel angry in the moment and I just impulsively react to it, almost always the thing that I'm going to do is going to be destructive. And people who have anger issues within their life, they're people who act impulsively out of anger. This is why James says right before the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. He doesn't say don't get angry. He says be slow when you get angry. In other words, he's saying be intentional about your anger. So every now and then, yes, you can act out of anger in a way that, again, prevents injustice or avenges injustice. That's okay, as long as it's working within the framework that God has already established. Meaning, if I see something unrighteous happen, let's say, um, let's say for instance, somebody robs me or something like that, I can use, I can move in anger to pursue justice by calling the police, things like that, because God has set up the government to be an avenger of unrighteousness on this earth. That's very important. I can utilize what God has set up in his perfect justice in order to achieve justice on my behalf. What I can't do is I can't do a vigilante justice thing where I track this guy to his house and I kneecap him and I take all my stuff back, right? That is going beyond the line, right? The wrath of man is not producing the righteousness of God. I'm not working in concert with God's justice. I'm working apart from God's justice to achieve my own ends. So this also means not only can I not act out of anger in a way that goes against God's system, but I also need to make sure that what I'm angry about is actually unjust, right? So for instance, right now, there are many people who are very angry and protesting outside of some Supreme Court justice houses because their quote-unquote right to abortion might be taken away in some states. This is an unrighteous outpouring of anger, because right? Because the repealing of Roe versus Wade does not make abortion illegal. It reduces the right to fe from federal to state by state. That's right. That's literally and, all it is. And even if, even if it did take it away, which would be cool, it's not going to happen, but yeah. um, it, it, even if it did their anger would still be unjust because they would be angry that the law would be protecting other innocent life. That is an unjust outpouring of anger. Now, it would be totally just if someone who's living in a state that is going to now strengthen the legality of abortion, like New York and California and New Jersey have already blatantly said that that's what they're going to do. They're going to actually make abortion more accessible in their state. If I was living in one of those states, I would be justifiably angry at what the local government was doing. And in that anger, there are things I can do within the system. There are things I can do within the system to express that anger, to express that outrage in a way that doesn't go against God and doesn't go against his plan and his justice. So that's very, very important. Jesus is in a very different category than us, right? So we have to work in concert with God's justice. Jesus is God. So by definition, everything he does is within God's justice. So when God acts in anger, which he does many times throughout the Bible, by the way, 
that's why we call it the wrath of God, right? In the book of Revelation, they rightly say it is the wrath of the Lamb. That's what's happening. That's the emotion God is feeling when he is judging the earth. When God acts out of righteous anger, when he acts out of anger, we use the qualifier righteous to denote that he's not doing anything unrighteous or wrong. Or impulsive. Or impulsive. This is thought out. This is methodical. He is doing this not because he has vindictive hatred, but because he is trying to achieve a good end. And he is using justice to do so. Uh, Very similar to parents disciplining a child. So when someone says don't discipline your child out of anger, what they mean is do not impulsively strike your child when you're in a fit of anger over something that they've done. It doesn't mean you cannot get upset with bad behavior that your child does, right? That would be illogical. Obviously, if my child does something unrighteous or wrong or unlawful and hurts me, hurts others, I ought to be angry about that. But if I then impulsively move and strike my child out of that anger, then I've acted in unrighteousness. But if I can calm myself and I could forgive my child and then I can move. And even though the anger is what's motivating me, right, the anger over the unjust behavior is motivating me to discipline my child. The discipline will be with the intent of improving his life or her, in my case, her life, uh, not just damaging them, right, which would be abuse. So I, I hope that helps out. But yes, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he is acting out of righteous anger. There's nothing in the text that would indicate that he hurt anyone when he did this. But what was happening in the temple was incredibly unrighteous, right? What they were doing is really, really bad. And if you want to know why it's so bad, you can ask. And there's a follow-up on that regarding the two incidents that took place. He thought it was another epistle telling the same story. Uh, Two qualifications, epistles, the writing of an apostle, a gospel account is a biography of Jesus. Make sure that's clear. Second, uh, no, it wasn't uh, the same event being recorded twice. Otherwise, that would be a contradiction in the Bible. What happened was in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, in verse 13 through 22, Jesus cleanses the temple for the first time. You're allowed to do something twice. I vacuumed the church last week, and I did this week. It's not a contradiction in the life of Sean Richards. (laughs) It's routine. If Jesus had to do it twice, it means they didn't learn the lesson. At the beginning of his ministry in John, chapter 2, and towards the end of his ministry during his final week in Jerusalem in Matthew 21 after his triumphal entry. That's in verses 12 through 17. But the point being made is this, Yari, uh, what took place there was essentially when the money changers, the people who were giving out the opportunity for people to worship God, were accepting donations to the temple. You know, you didn't have a lamb. Maybe you just had some coins that you were working for. You could donate those to the temple, but they managed to make this money-making loophole where they would not accept the Roman coins because they had Caesar's image on it. So they would convert it to temple shekels, but at a uh, small handling fee. That was why the money changers were targeted, in particular the doves. Now, why were the doves something that Jesus really got steamed about yeah the doves were the sacrifice that was on a it was something that was available for the poorest of the poor right so if you could not afford to sacrifice a a cow or a goat or a sheep then the doves were something that were available to you now this would hit jesus very uh personally because he came from an impoverished home uh his parents had to offer a dove at his uh, uh basically whenever you had a firstborn child you had to give an offering for them to god and they had to offer doves, which means that they were dirt poor. Yeah, so, the 12 yeah. days of Christmas, the two turtle doves, that's where that comes from. But the cheapest option available, and they were 
I guess, uh, going after even the poorest of the poor, being an obstacle between people and wanting to have a relationship with God. And he was miffed about that. If you want to know the things that get God angry, it's being an obstacle between him and his people. But the point being made is this. If it happened at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, it doesn't mean that he did the same thing. or that uh, he he did the same thing at the same time. It means that he did the same thing at two different times, which is, by the way, allowed. But if, on the other hand, we were to say, why did he do it? See the previous question. If we were going to say, what was he referencing? We mentioned a den of thieves. That's, again, a reference to Jeremiah very early on, where people were doing the same thing (laughs) in Jeremiah's day, and he quotes it with intent. But the point being made is this. God gets angry, and he does it right. God does a lot of things and gets it right. That's why we want to be more like him, less like us, because when we do it, we don't get it right. Let us know if that's clear, Yari. But again, John chapter 2, Matthew 21, two separate events, but the same incident and for the same reasons. That being said, a question from Mac, several in fact, uh, is mother wants to know why God created Satan with such power and splendor that allowed it to get to his head. Uh, Pride took over, question mark. When it comes to the reason for Satan's fall, two passages generally people go to where the prophet Isaiah in chapter 14 of his book and Ezekiel chapter 28 both make comparisons to the kings of Babylon and Tyre, uh, kind of an offshoot of the Philistines, but a large trading nation, who both became very big for their britches and are directly used as illustrations of the fall of another spiritual creature, a cherub, by the name of Lucifer. There is some debate as to far as whether as far as whether or not that's a uh, title or a term used to identify him. I don't think it's really relevant. But the point being made is this. Whenever we're told anything about Satan, it's either to contrast with Jesus as the better option, or it's a cautionary tale, just like anything else in the Bible that didn't turn out so hot. If we're looking at Lucifer, the son of the morning, or if we're going to just refer to him as our adversary, Satan, the accuser, we need to first understand God didn't set Lucifer up to fail. If someone gets something wrong, it's their fault, not God's fault. It's probably the, I have to leave like a bar open because the world will never cease to surprise me on these things anymore, but probably the third most immature thing I could ever hear said on the internet, that if God was so good, then he'd make us in a way where we wouldn't mess up. So if I mess up, it's God's fault because he should have made me better. I, I just, I genuinely don't understand that logic. But if on the other hand, we were to say God allowed Satan the capacity for great good, you've r- talked about this in your book too, what does that also include the risk of? Great evil. Yeah, so the, the, the mistake, the logical fallacy that we can make is that power leads to corruption. Uh, that's not true. First of all, we have no indication that Satan was the most powerful angel. And in fact, there are passages that would suggest that he is not he is the most powerful. He a big one, but not the highest. He's definitely an exalted cherub, and those are exalted creatures because that's what the word means, but yeah. not the highest. That's right, not the highest. And uh, in fact, in the book of Revelation, it's just some random angel that, that locks him up in, in, <laughs> in the lake of fire. So I'm, I'm sorry, in, in the abyss. So there's... No indication that Satan was particularly powerful or beautiful among the angelic hosts. Uh, It's just that he was beautiful and he was powerful and he did let that get to his head. But many angels do not let that power or glory to go to the head. I can name two. That's right. They, They allow that power and glory to be manifested in a love and a adoration for the one who gave them that power and gave them that glory. Uh, And that's what we're supposed to do. So, 
especially in America, you know, where we have the quote power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You have to understand the founding fathers did not actually have a problem with power. If they had a problem with power, they would have been anarchists, not uh, in favor of representative democracy. They were afraid of the corrupt nature of man. So in other words, they think there's something wrong with us <laughs> that when we get power, it magnifies the corruption that already exists in us. They don't think that people are just totally pure and awesome, and then they get power, and then they turn into corrupt, evil people. That's yeah, not yeah. how that works. Yeah. You want to see who someone really is, give them money. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's how that works. That's right. So you know, and if you go through the Book of Kings, which is, is actually a pretty excellent book, you'll see that some kings got it right and some kings got it wrong, in the South anyway. So uh, you know, in the Southern Kingdoms, some kings actually in their power, they became better. Uh, I think about, uh, I'm thinking about this, Jotham. Yeah, Jotham. He actually grew up in power and he becomes a better and better man the longer he's in power. Uh, he was actually probably the best king that they had until he got killed in battle. So he, he was just going up and up and up. Some of the kings, they start good and then they end bad. Some kings start bad. They start, start terrible like Manasseh. And then end up good. So power is not the, the yeah at the very, very end through some not so fun life circumstances. He ends up becoming good. But power is not the deciding impact. It's how people's hearts respond to the power that's the deciding impact. So, yeah, the fear that we should have when we get power is not that the power will corrupt me. But now that I have power, how will the corruption that already exists in me be magnified through the power that I now exercise over others? So that's what we're talking about. Satan was not corrupted because God made him glorious. If power, again, if power and beauty were the problem, God would make everything ugly and weak. <laughs> and he could do that, but he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't wrap everything in bowl wrap and then say, well, I did everything on my end. No, he respects us enough to let us make mistakes and to see the consequences therein. But that's the whole point. If something's powerful, that means depending on where it's put, it becomes a good or bad thing. If Satan was given the opportunity to be a glorious angel, a living instrument, some would argue, of worship before God, and it was instead used for something else, that as we can see today, caused a lot of damage. But also note, it doesn't mean that the power is the issue. We can look at Michael and his defense of the people of Israel. It's done fantastic glorification for God. We can look at Gabriel and his preparation for the coming of Messiah and all that that entailed and everything that he was involved with. And we can certainly look at Jesus as one who definitely wasn't uh, comely hmm. or of any appearance but the fact that he had the power to literally undo this world in a moment instead only allowed himself to be taken shows where power ought to be so the fact is we just need to clarify that assumption power isn't the issue the person is and if lucifer was allowed to be what he chose to be that's not a mark against god that's a double mark against him because he not only knew that power but also its purpose we are given a lot of grace and that we haven't seen god in all of his glory and abuse our power and our freedoms accordingly but when we go to heaven that's going to quickly align itself right well the reason why angels don't have salvation is because they know a lot more and that's also why the penalties for those who have seen more miracles say for example the old testament were a lot harsher because yeah. they were held accountable to more that's the difference yeah. uh another question from Mac who wants to know how do you know if you bear good fruit in your life well, I guess you know what to look for and you remember fruit's not a immediate 
product, right? Yeah. Yeah. So very good question. The aspect of fruit, you could use it in two connotations. One is in the Philippians 4 connotation. The other is in the Galatians 5, John 15 connotation. Now, what the Philippians 4 connotation is talking about, and you could read this passage in your own time, Paul talks about receiving offerings from the church of Philippi, and he says, I do not seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So he's defining fruit as good deeds done that God sees, is taking account of, and will reward the believer for. In Galatians 5 and John 15, fruit is not seen as behavior, but fruit is seen as a change of character, and that's very different. So uh, this is something that's present within the scriptures. It's a philosophy of man in which we cannot actually be made good through strictures on our person. We can only be made good actually if our character is changed, and then we do good behavior as a result of that character shift. So if you want to know if you're bearing good fruit, if your your life is beginning to resemble more and more of God, which, by the way, uh, real quick, uh, how do you know a fruit tree? Right. So if I walk up to a tree and I'm not a botanist and I see an apple on it, it's an apple tree. Right? <laughs> and it's very, very obvious. So when they're saying bearing fruit, they're saying, what is your nature? Right. Whatever fruits coming out of your life, that's your nature. That's who you are. And so when Paul talks about the fruit of love, the fruit of the spirit being love, that's what he's talking about. Are you becoming more like the nature of God or more like your old fallen nature of the flesh? Which is not love. Right, which we need to clarify love. that. We're not creatures that naturally love. The fruit of our heart is whether the spirit's there or not. That's right. That's right. So when Paul is talking about how do we bear this fruit, uh, well, he actually doesn't mention it too much in Galatians 5, but Jesus gives us a really good hint on how to bear fruit in John chapter 15. So let me read that passage real quick because Jesus is the person who came up with this analogy, and I think that he has authority to speak on such issues. So John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So this metaphor is very powerful because, as Sean first alluded to, not only does it say that fruit is a gradual process within the believer's life, just like fruit bearing on a tree doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes uh, a lot of investment. Also, it refers to the idea that we are actually powerless to have this type of character change. You can train yourself to become a more moral or ethical person, and many people do this all the time, all over the world. Uh, in fact, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were actually pretty good at this. It doesn't make you a more moral person, though. You can do all the right things, but your character isn't necessarily changing. So what Jesus is telling us is that if you want your character to change, if you want to bear this fruit— it happens, first of all, through his work. So this is verse 3. I mean, I'm sorry, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, bear fruit takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So he's saying that this is a divine work within your life, that the Holy Spirit indwelling in me is changing my character from the inside out, and then God is actually actively gardening his believers, right? He is... He is moving us in directions where we're actually cultivating better and better, better character. He's using the uh, situations and circumstances in your life to make you more like his son. That's what Romans 8 says. And then the active thing that you do 
is, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Jesus is already in you, but you need to abide in him. Now, what this means is I need to orient myself so that I'm growing closer and closer to him in a loving sense. Which is the hard part. That's the hard part, right? So, uh, in other words, I do not become more like Christ by actively trying to follow all of his commands. That's actually a fruit. It's a byproduct of the main thing that I'm trying to do in my life, and that is getting closer to Jesus. I want to understand him more. I want to love him more. I want to pursue him more. That's why I'm doing all the things that I'm doing. And yes, fighting your sin also can help you grow closer to God. But all these things are with the intent, the express purpose of abiding in Jesus. The fruit of that, both literal and physical, are going to be your character is going to shift to be more like his. So uh, I hope that helps. All right. And then another question from Mac who wants to know, uh, an unbeliever asked, uh, why serve your God that kills babies back in the day of Moses when the angel of death came around? Well, first of all, it doesn't say babies. It says firstborn. That's a chronology. That's a term of chronological order, not of necess- uh, necessarily of uh, the uh, age. Yeah, yeah, it's not that they were just born first. Yeah. It was they were the firstborn in their families. But let's say that a few uh, people ended up losing infants at this time. Let's go not to Exodus chapter 9, but Exodus chapter 1, and read an interesting incident that took place in Egypt. It says in verse 15, after, by the way, the Pharaoh of Egypt was ignorant of history and started oppressing the people of Israel through rigorous slavery, it says in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 1, then God, no, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name one was Sifra and the other Pua, said, what you d- when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. That's weird. I thought God killed babies. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Uh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mightily or grew very mighty. Uh, That doesn't sound like a God that commits infanticide. And I'd have to misrepresent the text in the Passover in order to represent that. But here's where we now understand at least two fifths of the story. When we get to Exodus chapter 12 and the deaths of the firstborn took place, we read in verse 29, and it came to pass at midnight. Oh, wait, verse 29. There are 28 verses before that, including instructions on how to avoid this. Fascinating. Anyway, and by the way, available to the Egyptians too. But continuing on, verse 29 says that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of the livestock. We leave that part out too. So Pharaoh rose in the night, all his servants, all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. So after Pharaoh systemically tries to exterminate actual babies for the crime of being Jewish, 
God gives him not one, not two, but 12, plus another 80 years before Moses even came around technically to give him these warnings, along with Aaron, along with the miracles, along with all of the chances that were given in between, along with the provision to escape all of this, explained publicly throughout all the land of Egypt, this is how you avoid your firstborn, not your firstborn infant, not your firstborn child, your firstborn, that's all the text says, to die. And they ignore these warnings after a just God who didn't have to give those warnings and provisions, by the way, gives time for the people to avoid these things. The only ones who avoid the damage are the ones who ignored the warning. If you were told and explained, here's how your firstborn child will not die tonight. Well, if I did basically seen over the last several years, this is the same guy who turned the Nile to blood, who made fleas go after the people who don't have any body hair, made the frogs appear out of nothing, and then go stinky for a few days, and among other things, set our entire city on fire. This is going to be something I take seriously. Or not. But guess who is at fault for those who are in the or not category? The person who would make this accusation against God is either A, basing it on of not the text, B, reading into the text something that Pharaoh actually did, that God was judging him for as the leader of a nation, and of course, not in the same way because he gave him years of opportunities to get his act right and the opportunity to avoid these consequences was available for anyone within earshot, which, by the way, was the whole nation. So just a few facts, I guess, to clarify to your unbeliever, but we are familiar with all that. So thank you for bringing that up, Mac. I hear that all too often, if you can't tell. Uh, here's a question from Holly. If someone was saved but turned their back on God, will they still be raptured? Well, again, qualifications for the rapture or not, let's just say physically dies whether you're before the uh, throne of God because he took you up or you went because your body failed, either way, if the apostate, someone who turns their back on God, specifically someone who turns their back on Jesus, are they saved? Well, John 3.36, he who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, so yeah, me and, me and Sean, we say this on the show quite often. Um, there are two schools of thought. There are once saved, always saved Christians, and then there are can you lose your salvation types of Christians. So the once saved, always saved crew would look at that question. They would say, well, if you were really saved, you can't turn your back on God. So if you turn your back on God, that's proof that you were never saved and, and you're not elect. Well, right? And you need Jesus. Right. And you need to be saved. And so you need to pursue Jesus. The side that says you can lose your salvation would say like, well, no, you, you can be saved and you could also lose your salvation. Now, within that category, you have to ask the question of like, well, what constitutes losing your salvation? What does it take to lose your salvation? And there are different schools of thought. There are the crazy people who are like, man, if you if you get angry at somebody and you don't ask for forgiveness, you might go to hell. You know, like that's that's the the really you could go like in between salvation and non-salvation like 30 times in a day right according in to a them minute. right in a minute you know so then there's the more uh, conservative side that would say no the only way to lose salvation in god is to openly reject him is to say i do not want god in my life you reject him you deny him altogether that would constitute a loss of salvation 
Um, me and Sean, we kind of fall into the I don't really care very much category. If the semantics are iffy, but the outcome is solid, what do both parties ultimately end up bringing the, you to? That person needs Jesus if they turn their back on him. Right. Whether they lost it or they never had it, it's still at the same point. Right. Don't take salvation for granted, but know where it's from. That's right. And so, you know, I, I've given funerals. I've done funerals where the person says, I don't know. I don't know. They had a relationship with God. They turned away in the last couple of years. I have no idea. And in the memorial, I'll, I'll say that we don't know. We know they're in the hands of a loving and just God. We don't know if that turning away was a total turning away, like they completely rejected God, or if they were backsliding into sin. We also don't know what happened in the last moments of their life. We just don't know. But we trust the justice of God, and that's where it stands or falls. So if you have a friend that is turning away from God, the motivation in your heart should be, I want to encourage them to to not do that. I want to do everything I can to, to prevent them from doing that. But ultimately, it's their decision, and they're going to have to live with whatever decision that they make. All right. Now, we got about a minute and a half to answer a 50-minute question, but uh, <laughs> we'll try to make this work. Justin wants to know, why does God use evil for his glory? Then mm-hmm. gives the hypothetical scenario, I just wouldn't create anything evil if I knew the outcome would be they'd ultimately reject me. Why is it that uh, we're grateful God didn't do that? Yeah, uh, real, real quick. I know this, like Sean said, deserves a much longer answer, but so I hope you're not frustrated by this. But first of all, God values free will above basically most other things, including the existence of pain and suffering. Why? Because God values love. And in order for love to exist, you have to have free will. And if God prevented anyone from being made that had the potential to fall, then you wouldn't be free. You wouldn't be free to make decisions regarding God. You would only be dancing to the tune of whatever God has predestined you to do. So in other words, God would be organizing people and only creating people in such a way where they would never fall short of his glory and never sin. We wouldn't be free and people wouldn't be able to make decisions that constitute free will. And therefore, we would not be free to love. The second reason why God uses evil in a fallen world, so that's why fallenness happened in the first place, but God uses evil in a fallen world to let us know what the consequences of sin are. If we lived in a perfect world that God is hidden from, we went, we might conclude, well, God must not be that great because the world's pretty great and he's nowhere to be seen. Uh, the reason why pain and suffering exist in this world is the natural outpouring of God removing himself from the creation as a result of sin. And we're supposed to conclude, therefore, I want to be reunited to God and not be continuously separated from him. Thank you all for joining us. We look forward to talking to you again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.